scripture passage this morning. It's kind of exciting to come up here and preach on this new stage for the first time today. If uh, you are a part of our church community, Mark is saying, can I see you up there? Um, we, uh, we, we tore out the old stage this week and built this new stage uh, over the last few days. It's a bit of a work in uh, progress. This next week, they're going to lay the new uh, floor up here. They're going to start building the, the media booth, and we'll put the screens and the speakers and, and, and kind of a permanent installation there. And um, that's part of a larger uh, vision, um, not only to add more seats uh, here in the sanctuary, but also to really plant our roots uh, here in Lake Highlands to make this a long-term uh, church home uh, for our uh, two-year-old congregation. We're in the process of, of raising the funds to buy this property as well as uh, to make some more significant uh, renovations. And um, if you want to learn more about that, we do have some brochures out by the door on your way out. And um, for those of you who are guests and visitors, please disregard this. But for you who would say this is your, your church family, um, just as a reminder, if, if you would prayerfully consider if you want to contribute uh, toward this opportunity, we're hoping to receive uh, those pledge commitments um, on or before uh, December 4th, so coming up uh, in a few weeks. So thank you in advance for prayerfully uh, considering that. Um, it's great to be with you this morning. My name is Charlie Dunn, and we've been in this teaching series now for a couple of months. It's a series called uh, Faith You Can Explain. And, you know, there's no part of the Bible uh, that more concisely summarizes what the whole Bible story is all about. If you were to ask, what is it that Christians believe? Really, the most concise summary is found in the first five chapters of the New Testament letter to the Romans. And so we've been walking through those five chapters together. Um, if you were to ask the question, what is wrong with our world? Why is the world not the way that we sense that it should be? Paul speaks to that, and we talked about that for a number of Sundays together. And then for the last three Sundays, we've talked about how would Christians answer the question of, of what has God done to make things right in Jesus? And we talked about the good news of the gospel. You know, it was pretty striking to me. I got to have a conversation um, earlier this week, actually with one of the guys who is doing the construction work uh, here in the sanctuary. I've gotten to know him over the last couple of weeks, was able to ask him um, if he had um, any kind of spiritual faith or background. And what he shared with me um, was just the, the, the incredible change that had happened in his life when he trusted Jesus as his Savior. He said he had done a lot of things in his past that he was not proud of, a lot of things that he regretted, that he knew were wrong. Um, but a couple of years ago, he said he trusted Jesus as his Savior, and he knew that everything he had done was completely forgiven, that he was now righteous in God's sight through Jesus, and that brought so much joy and freedom into his life. And I know many of us in this room have experienced that same good news in our lives as well. And that's the good news that we talked about really for the last three Sundays together, good news that we receive by faith. We do nothing to earn. It is a gift of God's grace. And yet, even as we were talking about what has God done to make things right in Jesus, it begs the question, well, if God has made things right in Jesus through the gospel, why is there still so much that is wrong in our world? Why is there still so much that is wrong in our own hearts, in our own lives? Maybe you struggle with loneliness or with depression, with anxiety. 
Maybe you find yourself sucked into some of the same repeated patterns of self-destructive behavior. Maybe you have relationships in your life where they just seem broken or you have felt betrayed or you look around at the wider world and you recognize there's a lot of violence. There's a lot of oppression, injustice. There's a lot of poverty and hunger and suffering. If God has made things right through Jesus, then why is there still so much that is wrong in our world? And, you know, I think this gets to part of the the Christian faith that is important for us to be able to explain, namely this, this belief that we have that while God is making all things right through Jesus, that that renewal, that salvation comes primarily in two major phases. That is, in Jesus' first coming, he's done everything necessary to restore us to God. But in Jesus' second coming, when Jesus returns, he's going to renew everything that is broken in our world. And as theologians put it then, our salvation is both already, but it's also not yet. And you and I, we live in this between period. We live in this period of waiting. And of course, waiting is hard. Waiting is not something that I think that comes naturally to many of us here in this room. Just next time somebody's pulling out of a parking spot and you're ready to take that parking spot, you'll find out how good you are at waiting uh, in that moment. But um, I'm reading this book right now. It's by a, an author named James K.A. Smith. It's called How to Inhabit Time. It's been a really interesting read about the, the way that time and our place in time shapes our discipleship and what it means to follow Jesus. And he uses this great illustration um, to describe this season in which we live as followers of Jesus. He, he remembers a couple of years ago his son and his daughter-in-law, they were getting ready to buy their first home. You know, fortunately, it was before the, the interest rates have been coming up as much as they have um, in recent months. But they were getting ready to buy their first home. They were really excited about this. They were really hopeful for their new life in this home. They, they found a house that they really wanted to buy. They put it in offer. And yet, unfortunately, so did like nine other families, and they did not get that first home. So he said they moved on to the next one, they put in an offer, and they didn't get it. And time and time again, their offer was rejected until eventually they started to feel really discouraged, to feel really hopeless, like maybe we're not going to find that right home. And then finally, they put in an offer, and it was accepted. And again, they thought to themselves, yes, this is exactly where God wants us to be. This is going to be our home. And yet, even after their offer was accepted, there was still waiting, waiting for the inspection, waiting for the appraisal, waiting for the the escrow period to be completed. And and, and I love the way that James K.A. Smith puts this. He says they were still waiting for closing day. And he says that's the season of time in which we as Christians live. Because we know our future home. We know where we're going to spend eternity, but we are still waiting for that closing day. And living in that waiting period is hard. And it's also one of the hard things about our faith to explain, to explain to those who don't yet believe. You know, we've been talking about that a lot in this series. How do we share our faith with our seeking and our skeptical friends? And and I think that for those who aren't yet convinced Christians, this idea of God's salvation coming in these, these two phases, it might be hard to accept, might be hard to understand. In fact, there was, there was a young adult who was visiting our church for, for several weeks who was an atheist, 
He and I went and had um, lunch together one day, and one of the questions he asked me is he said, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus first came. Why hasn't he returned? You ever think about that question? He said, you know, don't you as Christians believe that Jesus came and he, he lived and he died on the cross, he rose again from the dead, ascended back to heaven with his father and he's coming again. Why hasn't he returned? It's been 2,000 years. Does that cause you any doubt, any question as to whether Jesus really is going to come back or whether he really ever came at all? That was his objection. Uh, other people, their objection might be if you are waiting for this future home, you're waiting for this, this future world, well, then might that cause you to be more disinterested, indifferent, disengaged, passive towards trying to make this world a better place here and now? You know, wasn't that John Lennon's objection in that song, Imagine? Anybody know that song? Beautiful melody, right? I mean, incredibly beautiful song. And yet, what does he sing in that song? He says, imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Why does he say that? Why would that be so great if everybody was just living for today? Well, he thinks to himself, look, if, if this life is all that you have, if this world is all that we have, uh, then we're going to be committed to trying to care for other people, trying to work to make this world a better place here and now if this world is our final home. And so I wonder, how would you answer John Lennon if you were to sit down and, and talk with him and he were to bring up this objection? How would you answer that objection? Uh, or how would you answer that young man who was visiting our church who said, why hasn't Jesus come back? I think it's important for us then to be able to try to speak about what is our future promised home, our future promised reality in a way that is compelling to those who don't yet believe. More important than that, it's, it's really important for us to be able to grab hold of that future and pull it back into our present in the kind of way that's going to fill us with hope and give us the faith to be able to wait on God. And so that's why Paul, in this passage that Julia read for us, Romans 4, he puts forward an example of a guy who was really experienced in waiting, a guy by the name of Abraham. Abraham had a lot of practice in waiting. Some of you know Abraham's story. If you don't, here's a brief summary. Abraham was living in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans. God said, I want you to leave your homeland. Abraham said, where do you want me to go? God said, I'll tell you later, just go. Then later, God comes back to him and he says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a land for you and for your descendants. Abraham says, that's wonderful. Where's it going to be? God says, I'll tell you later, just wander. Finally, God comes back to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. I'm going to give you many descendants. Abraham says, God, how? And God says, just wait. Again and again, God calls Abraham to wait. And you know, Abraham got to see some of the promises that were made to him fulfilled. Many of them he didn't get to see fulfilled. Many of them have yet to be fulfilled even still. And what Paul does is he puts forward Abraham as an example because he says, look, the promises that God made to Abraham weren't just for Abraham. 
Verse 16, uh, Paul says that the promises made to Abraham are also made to his offspring who have the faith of Abraham. Then verse 23, Paul says what was written and, and, and said to Abraham wasn't just for his benefit, but for the benefit of those who would come to believe in Jesus. In many ways, these promises were made for us as well. And so if we want to be able to trust in these promises, we want to wait on God like Abraham, well, then it's pretty important that we are clear about what those future promises are so that we're able to to trust, so that we're able to wait, so that we're able to pull those future promises back into our present in a way that fills us with hope and purpose right now today. So what I want to do is I want to walk through three of the promises that that, that uh, Paul lays out here uh, in Romans chapter 4, three promises God made to Abraham and that he makes to us. And here's the first. God promised Abraham and us an inheritance. We're promised an inheritance. Look at this in verse 13. It says, Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world. Heir of the world. Now, what is an heir? What does it mean to be named someone's heir? In the first century Roman world, the context in which Paul was writing, you could become somebody's heir in, in two ways. The first way is the way that's probably more typical today, namely that, that you are the child of that person who has the estate that they want to pass on, and that day it would be the firstborn male that would be the heir of the estate. That was the typical, most common way, but there was a second way you could become an heir in Paul's day. And that was to become an heir through adoption. But typically that adoption didn't take place with a young child. It took place with a fully grown adult. So that was the case, for instance, with, um, if you've ever heard of Augustus Caesar, he was named and adopted as the heir of Julius Caesar. And so what would happen in that adoption is the moment that you were adopted, the moment that you were brought into the family, you were named as somebody's heir, immediately all of your debts would get paid off. If you had any debts, you had any liabilities, they would be paid off by that adopting person's estate. And then along with that, now as you went about your life, as you went about your business, you would do so with all of the, the name and the power and the reputation that came with being this person's heir. And then eventually when that person died, you would inherit all of their estate. And you see what Paul is saying here is that not only did God promise that Abraham would be his heir, but he promised that his offspring, those who trust in Jesus by faith, would be God's heirs as well. You see this in, in verse 16. You see it even more clearly in Romans 8, verse 17. And there Paul says, Everyone who trusts in Christ is made an heir of God and a co-heir with Christ. And, and let, me just, let me just make sure we, we, we grasp just what an incredible thing that is. That is the highest, most significant blessing and privilege that God could ever bestow on a human being to call you his heir. I mean, it's one thing, right, if, if a president pardons a criminal, stays their execution, that's pretty great for them, right? It's one thing for your sins to be forgiven, but to be an heir is better than that. For, for that same criminal to, to then be brought into the president's administration, to be given a post in his cabinet, I mean, that would be a really significant honor, right? To be an heir is better than that. 
But for that president to say, now you, criminal, you are actually going to be adopted into my family and you're going to inherit everything in my estate. As wonderful as it is for God to forgive our sins, to consider us righteous in his sight, the greatest privilege he can give to you and that he has given to you is to call you his heir. It's amazing to think that we are our heirs of God in Christ. And yet as great as that is, what is it that we are promised to inherit? Well, what does it say in verse 13? It says, God made Abraham heir of what? The world, the cosmos, the, the universe. Now you say, where did God promise that to Abraham? Where did he promise him the world? Technically, he didn't. You go back to the Old Testament, all it says is God promised him Israel. He promised him that strip of land in the Middle East that we know as Israel or Palestine or Canaan. But here's the thing. This is why it's so important to read the whole Bible as one unfolding story that centers around Jesus. Because by the time you get to the New Testament, what you see is that God has a bigger plan. He has a bigger purpose. His intention is not just to focus on this little strip of land called Israel but it's actually to to renew and restore the whole of the world. And you see that, by the way, not just here in in Romans 4. You see it in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus in the Beatitudes says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit. The Old Testament says the land of Israel. But Jesus says the meek will inherit what? The earth. Like it's this bigger picture. It's this bigger vision. Have you ever asked yourself, why did God put his people in the Old Testament in that little strip of land known as Israel? Like why did he put them there? You know, he could have put them in a land that was more fertile, like the the Nile River Delta area in Egypt. Or he could have put them in like a nice place like New Zealand. I've never been to New Zealand, but it seems like a beautiful place. Besides that, it's very isolated, right? It's an island. So if he wants to keep away the pagan influences from his people, that seems like a really good candidate for where to put them. So why did he put them in the little strip where he did? If you look at an ancient map of of that time period in the world, I think it answers the question pretty quickly. In those days, they knew of three continents, Right? Europe and Asia and Africa. Israel's right there in the very center of the known world. Meaning what? Meaning that God's plans for Israel were always meant to be much bigger than Israel. Right? It was to start with Israel, but Israel was to be the launching pad from which his message was going to be shared with the whole of the world. And so the promise that is made to those who are co-heirs with Christ is that we will inherit not just this little strip of land in Israel, we'll inherit the whole of the world. This renewed and restored world where God is going to make all things new. Where heaven's going to come down to this earth. And things are going to be the way that they're supposed to be. Now, let me tell you, why is that so important? Like, why should that fill us with so much great hope? Well, I'll tell you, first and foremost, it means that if you are a follower of Jesus, if you've put your trust in Jesus today, Jesus is going to be nobody's debtor. So maybe you look at your life right now and you think, gosh, I wish I had more of that or I wish I were married, or I wish I had more money, or I wish I had that job, or I wish I looked that way. There are things in this life that you wish that you had, but you don't have. Maybe you feel that discontent. You feel that sense of envy. And yet Jesus says he will be nobody's debtor. 
And even if you think to yourself, gosh, if I'm serious about following Jesus and being his disciple, maybe I'll miss out on some of the good things of this life. You know, Jesus says to his disciples, look, nobody who gives up anything to follow me in this life will not fail to receive a hundredfold in that renewed world to come. And nothing that you might miss out in, on in this life now will even begin to compare to that inheritance that awaits you, that fully renewed world. I don't know what that is going to be like. But I can tell you, Romans 8, 19, Paul says that creation itself is on tiptoe in anticipation of the day when the sons and daughters of God will be revealed. When that inheritance will be received, it's gonna be mind-blowing. And Paul seems to be saying that's the kind of thing our hearts are supposed to live off of that future inheritance that will to come and the hope we find in that. And just one other thing, if you're gonna try to answer John Lennon, if we know that our inheritance is not that we're gonna be taken away to some other alternative to this world, we're not gonna be whisked off to live forever in some spiritual realm called heaven. No, what's our inheritance? It's this world, it's this earth. That's what we're gonna get back, this life, but so much better. What that means is that right now we start working to renew and to restore this world that one day Jesus is going to renew in its fullness. That we're trying to bring little foretastes of that future kingdom back into the present in the way we do our work, the way we relate with our neighbors, the way that we care for people in really tangible ways. So that first promise is that we're going to be heirs of the world. Here's the second. The second thing we're promised is we're promised all nations. All nations. Did you notice that in verses 16 and 18, we're told that God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations. That he would not just be the father of those who were of the law, which is Paul's way of referring to the, the Jewish people, his physical ethnic descendants, but he, he would also be the father of all of those who would trust in Jesus, who would have Abraham's faith as well. They too would be counted among his descendants. That was a promise that was made to Abraham. It's something you see borne out at the end of the biblical story. There's a place in Revelation chapter 7 where it says that in God's renewed world, there are going to be people from every tribe, nation, and tongue who are going to be part of that renewed world, worshiping God together. Now, why does that future promise really matter for us now? Why does it matter for the way that we share our faith with those who don't yet believe? Let me tell you, in our culture right now today, second only to the conversation around sexuality and gender is the topic of race. Right? It's a really important topic in our culture right now. People are asking the question, how do we create a society that is more just, that is more equitable? How do we root out racism and prejudice in the kind of way where people are going to get fair treatment under the law regardless of the color of their skin? Where people are going to have equal access to resources and opportunities regardless of their race or their ethnicity? Race is a really important topic in our culture today. Maybe you've noticed that. And, you know, there are a lot of different theories. There are a lot of competing ideas for how we bring that more just society about, some of which are more aligned with Scripture than others. But can I ask a, a deeper question? 
which is even as we recognize this is maybe the, the society that we want to create as Christians that we should long to create, where are we going to find really the motivation? Where are we going to find the vision? Where are we going to find the, the deep heart level desire to actually work towards creating a more racially just and less prejudiced society? Because, you know, the thing about racism is that it's not new. Right? In some ways in America, there's, there's a modern form of racism that was, was created to justify slavery of, of white people towards black people. But racism has always existed in our world. Racism exists in various different parts of our world. In many ways, it's almost endemic to the human heart. That certainly was true in the first century world to which Paul was writing this letter. One of the things you'll notice if you read through the book of Romans, how many times he talks about Jews and Gentiles. You want to know why he does that so much? Because they didn't like each other, right? There was so much prejudice between Jews and Gentiles. The Roman Empire had just conquered all these different nations. Now they're thrown into the same cities together. There's all sorts of racism and ethnic tension. And so Paul is trying to teach this church in Rome, how can you be united amidst all these different prejudices that you're bringing? How do we come to recognize that you Jews, that you Gentiles are no better before God so that you can live in harmony and unity together? Uh, Rodney Stark wrote a great book about the first century um, world. He's a historian. He talks about the fact that, that the church was actually the very first institution to try to, to bring people together across ethnic and racial lines into a, a, a community where they could be united together. The church was, was the most inclusive um, countercultural society in that first century world. And what motivated that was this vision of all nations, that God was going to bring together this people from all the different nations and ethnicities in the world. That's the vision that motivated Martin Luther King Jr. and much of the, the work that, that he did to combat against racism in our country many years ago. And, and I think if we're honest with ourselves, we know the church has failed at many times and in many ways to pursue this vision. Many ways has actually been a barrier to this vision. But when the church is at its best, when the church is holding on to this future vision of all nations, it's a powerful resource to fight against prejudice and racism in our own hearts and in the world around us. More than that, more than that, this promise of all nations, it motivates us to want to see people from all nations come to a saving faith in Jesus, to know that hope for themselves. Anybody ever heard of William Borden before? Anybody ever enjoyed a glass of Borden's milk? Borden cottage cheese or, or cheese? That's Borden from that Borden dairy farm. This was in the 1890s. This guy, William Borden, went off to Yale University. He was going to inherit a ton of money by being a part of the, the Borden dairy family. And, and when he was in college, he felt called to go to northern China, to Mongolia, to share the gospel with the Mongolians there. When his family heard that, they thought he was insane. They did everything they could to fight against it, to convince him not to go. But when he graduated from college, he was determined to go. He actually inherited all of his inheritance then to speak of heirs, and he gave it away. It would have been the equivalent to $2 billion today that he gave away um, to various different ministries and, and missions. And he moved across the world. He went to Cairo, Egypt to start to learn Arabic. He was there for a couple of weeks, and he contracted spinal meningitis. 
A couple of weeks later, William Borden was dead. And people said, what a waste of a life. What a waste. He had so much promise, so many other great things that he could have done. But they found written in his diary these words. He wrote these words. He said, no reserve, no retreat, no regrets. No reserve, no retreat, no regrets. Wouldn't you love, if you're a follower of Jesus, to be able to honestly pen those words? Isn't that an inspiration to say, I am committed and surrendered to Jesus to want to see people who don't yet know him come to know him? And you know, some people would have said, yeah, his death was a waste, but not not William Borden. Not those who know this future hope of all nations coming to faith in Jesus. And you know, actually, in the generation that followed, there were thousands of people who were so inspired by William Borden's example that thousands of missionaries ended up going out and, and wanting to share the gospel with all nations. It's a promise of all nations. And then finally, here's the last promise. It's a promise of life out of death. It's a promise of life out of death. Now, in Abraham's story, what that looked like for Abraham is for years, he and Sarah had longed to have a child but were unable to do so. Some of you know how painful that experience is. In fact, I heard just the other day, I was reading in a book by Tish Harrison Warren, she had two miscarriages in a row, and her doctors, I love what they said to her, they said, "Um, it takes 10,000 things going right for a baby to be able to be born. And Abraham and Sarah, they had longed to have a child, but they were unable to do so. And yet, amazingly, miraculously, Sarah got pregnant. They were able to have this little boy named Isaac. They got to see God bring life where it felt like there was only death. And yet, can I tell you, as miraculous and as amazing as that was for Abraham and Sarah, Paul says, if you're a follower of Jesus, you have gotten to see God bring life out of death in an even greater way. And that is the resurrection of Jesus. And Paul refers to that in verses 24 and 25. He says that God credits righteousness to those who believe in him who raised our Lord Jesus from the dead. Then he adds in verse 25, Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins, but he was raised to life for our justification." Do you know what that means? Do you know what it means that Jesus wasn't just raised from the dead to prove that he was God, but he was raised from the dead for our justification? Do you know what that means? You know, whenever Brandy and I go shopping at a, at a store together, let's say we're going to Target, and, and we bought some things at Target, and we get to the cash register, and, and we pay for our things, and we're given the receipt. I think Brandy might think, okay, let's just throw away the receipt. I want to hold on to that receipt. I want to keep that receipt out and available until we get to the front door. Why? I've never been accused of shoplifting. I've never shoplifted before. But there's this part of me, I'm just waiting for that moment. Maybe it just speaks to my defensiveness, my self-righteousness. Probably there's a psychological reason. But I'm just waiting for that moment when we're going to be accused of shoplifting. And I can pull out that receipt. And I can say, ha, here it is. We bought these things. You can never make me pay for them again. And, And, you know, Tim Keller, I love this. He says the resurrection is our receipt. The resurrection is the the proof that God will never make us pay for our sins. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death, but Jesus has already paid those wages. 
So what does that mean? It means that all that death can do to you if you are a Christian is to bring you into greater life than you have ever known before. And to one day experience that resurrection of the body that Jesus experienced, to be resurrected with a body fit for an eternity with God in a fully renewed and restored world. Now, of course, of course, do we still deeply grieve the loss and the absence of people we love who have died without a doubt. Death is terrible. Death is horrific. That's one of the things that we can speak to our non-believing neighbors and friends. Deep down, we know what a terrible thing death is. And so our culture either tries to deny it or we try to sentimentalize it in some way, but death is hideous. But if you know that Jesus is risen from the dead, if you have that receipt, you can know that you have nothing to fear in death. All it can do is bring you into greater and greater life because Jesus was raised for your justification. I have a prayer I like to pray at the start of every day, and at the end of that prayer, I love to pray and say, God, I know that whatever happens to me today, my best days are still to come because, Jesus, you laid down in death for me and you were raised for my justification. You can face anything if you know that Jesus was risen for you. And of course, right now, we have to wait. We're waiting on God to fulfill those promises, but we know that he who made those promises is trustworthy, he's faithful. And so we look forward to that future day when he is gonna give us our inheritance, this renewed world that we will share with people from all nations where death is gonna give way to life. That's what we're waiting for. And it's worth waiting for. So let's pray together as we come to the Lord's table. Father, thank you that you are a God who keeps your promises. Thank you that you haven't just made promises to us, but thank you that you have confirmed the truth of those promises to our hearts through the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. That is our confidence this morning, that you will complete this work of salvation that you have begun in Jesus, that one day you will make all things new. We pray that no matter what we are waiting on in our lives right now, no matter what challenges we are currently facing, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, I pray that that would be the comfort, that would be the assurance to our hearts to know that you have indeed made us right with you and that one day, Jesus, you are going to come again to make all things new. We love you. We trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, on the night that our Lord Jesus